0: And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Judith Curry. She's an expert in climate. And Judith, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Well, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.
0: I didn't even know how to describe you. I did look it up online. I guess you're the president of Climate Forecast Applications Network. There's a big, big phrase for you. So tell us a little bit about this network that you run.
1: Okay, well, I spent most of my career in academia, most recently at Georgia Tech, where I served for 13 years as the chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences. And while I was at Georgia Tech, we had a couple of projects um, that were more applied, and their innovation venture lab program um, suggested that we start a company. Okay, so we took their advice, and we started a company, Climate Forecast Applications Network, or CFAN for short. I know it's a big mouthful. (laughs) So. The idea behind our company was to translate, you know, the latest research in weather and climate into producing better risk management tools Mm. for, you know, companies and governments and whatever who needed to deal with weather and climate-related risks. So the first two clients sort of (laughs) tell you, Uh, two different directions. One was um, a project which was, um, I think, funded by USAID originally um, to help predict flood forecasts in the Ganges and Brahmaputra in India Mm. because, you know, the Indian Meteorological Department would give them maybe two days' warning at best, and this didn't give them enough time to, you know, harvest their crops or move their belongings and their seeds and their livestock to higher land and so forth and so on. So we overcame many challenges and developed a flood forecasting scheme uh, that was very successful. We did the technology transfer to Bangladesh, oh my gosh, (laughs) maybe 10 or 12 years ago and Mm. it's still being today. Now, on the other side, our, our second major client was a major petroleum company. So this was 2006, um, 2007, and the petroleum sector was still reeling from the after effects of Hurricane Katrina. Mm. You know, it just, I mean, it, it, it wiped out Louisiana
2: yes. you know, and killed
1: a lot of people, but it really wrought havoc with the Petroleum production and refining, okay, in the Western Gulf. Um, So what they wanted was better than market, better than government forecasts of hurricanes at longer time horizons. Mm -hmm. So they planned and take advantage of the wild natural gas market swings that occurred whenever there was, you know, threat of a hurricane. So, you know, so, so those Two, two threads. More, yeah. you know, one more humanitarian one, and and another one that's you know related to industry are still going on. But a big part of what we're doing now is for the insurance sector, um, particularly with um, insurance-linked security funds, who are using. Mechanisms, You know, they're going beyond insurance and reinsurance and using financial mechanisms like catastrophe bonds to help spread the risk.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so this is like a really important tool to help us, you know, manage the financial aspects
0: yes. of green yes. weather
1: and climate risk. And it's particularly, you know, important in a changing climate because they're not tied to the... Statistics of the past or the projections of the future—they're <laughs> they're a little bit more dealing in the here and now. You know what's going to yes. happen, is, and so it helps us. They're more flexible and nimble in terms of how they can respond. And so we're working with a number of companies in that space to help help them well make money, so they can you know sure. provide more more coverage and help you know that's to important. People who, who are having trouble um, covering their risk, like in Florida, California. Right. We are three big regions where where this weather and climate risk is just right. huge.
0: Well, it sounds like it's very practical oriented, and um, coming out of academia, that's a little bit of a contrast, perhaps. But um, it, you've got a uh, oh. tremendous foundation for the work you're doing now. Um, I did want to ask you, because you're kind of an expert here in, in climate, all things climate. Um, I don't know if it's now the time to transition, but let's just jump right into it. I, I'd like to ask about human-produced CO2, and why is that seen as the, as I would put it, the primary control lever for global warming? Um, i To me, it just doesn't fit common sense. But, hey, you're the expert. Maybe you could talk to that a little bit.
1: Okay. Um, You have to go back to the 1980s, 1990s. Um, And the U.N. environmental program, you know, had an agenda that was pro-environment, anti-fossil fuels, anti-capitalism, they were looking for a cause that would help, you know, promote non-governmental world control by mm-hmm. the U.N. Pretty radical stuff. Yeah. But but by 1992, the U.N. Framework Convention on Climate Change put forward a treaty to prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference in the climate
2: mm-hmm.
1: by eliminating CO2 emissions. And this was in 1992, before it had... Any understanding of this issue, yeah. or understood the socioeconomic impacts of either climate change or getting rid of fossil fuels, but this was a treaty that was signed by 196 countries, including the U.S. Okay, and, and so this set of, So, so they were only looking at dangerous human-caused climate change, um, ignoring natural climate variability and ignoring any benefits from warming. So, you know, this whole thing was set into motion decades ago before we knew what we were doing. Wow. And, and the whole framing, you know, of this problem in a very narrow way has really misled us fundamentally. Um, sure, carbon di- more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere overall has a warming effect. But, I mean, does... Is this what's causing the recent warming or the warming that we saw? Yeah, that's, like, that's
0: kind of my concern.
1: It's, well, it's contributed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the IPCC assessment report says more than half is extremely likely caused by, you know, human emissions. Um, in the more recent assessment report, climate models say 100% is caused by this. Well, the reason they come to these, to these conclusions is they're not adequately accounting for natural climate variability.
2: Yeah.
1: And, you know, the, the volcanic eruptions, the climate models, you know, know how to deal with those, but they don't really know how to deal with solar variability.
2: Mm-hmm. They certainly
1: can't predict it. And even for historical changes, you know, there's disagreement about what even happened, Um little let alone the actual physics of how it's impacting the climate. Yes. Um, In the latter part of the 20th century, we were in a grand solar maximum, you know, the highest solar activity in the past 8,000 years. You know, and they think, oh, solar doesn't matter, you know, a tiny fraction of 1%. I don't think so. And then the other big thing (laughs) that they don't get right is these large-scale, Oscillations of ocean circulation patterns, multi decadal time scales, which is exactly what we're looking at in terms of the modern warming. And, you know, that they simulate ocean variability, but they don't get, you know, the lower frequencies like century or multi decadal scales right. And they don't get the timing right. So they average a bunch of different climate models together and all these ocean oscillations sort of. Get lost in the average, and you end up only getting okay. the force of, which they say is dominated by CO two. So that's how we landed in this place. You know, wow. politics. Politics were way out in front of the scientific course from the very beginning on this, and you know, and they 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 define this as irreducibly as a global problem that requires a global solution and a global solution is going to require consensus of all the scientists you know and and so we ended up with a politically manufactured scientific consensus which is just basically not only is it screwed up policy making but it's screwed up climate science
0: yeah that, um, that that you're raising a good point here my goodness yeah i um it bothers me when when somebody stands up on a on the issue of science and say, well, everybody agrees, you know, that the, we've got the signatures of whatever hundreds and thousands of scientists, and, well, that's got some weight to it, but does it does it just match the simple facts? Can you measure it? Uh, you know, have you followed the history? Um, have, have you demonstrated that um, the CO2 – Would would have the CO two have been there had there been just normal warming? Uh, Is it produced another way? Is it a cause and effect? And is it a first order effect or second or third order effect? And it's like they never tell us those things. They just say we're gonna we're gonna pull the rug out from under you and cause you to drive electric cars from from (laughs) at some point and Um, get get you know
1: the crazy that they're forcing us to do. Um, you know, the climate system is exceedingly complex.
0: Yes, thank you.
1: And, and when you say, you know, what's causing something, that that is not a simple answer at all, because there's a lot of feedbacks in the system, you know, chicken and egg kind of issues. Correct. It's hard to figure out, well, did the CO2 or the temperature increase come first? And, you know, there's all these kind of things which that are very challenging to sort out. And the, the things that they used to, you know, raise the alarm as every extreme weather event. Yes. Um, you know, flooding in New York City, collapse of the dams in Libya, those are the two most recent, really big ones. Um, you know, they blame it on human-caused climate change. But, you know, the rains in both of those cases weren't particularly exceptional. They were certainly big. But the, the rainfall in New York City was actually tied for ninth place in the climate record for Central Park that goes back to 1856. You know, there were a lot of heavier rainfalls in one day, you know, in the late 1800s, which obviously had nothing to do with CO2 increase. So it's difficult to, you know, untangle a signal from global warming and extreme weather. Yes,
0: yes. But
1: but they blame every single extreme weather event on global warming. Okay, so not only does that, you know, sort of amps up the alarm to push for action for reducing CO2 emissions. It it gives politicians and decision makers an out, you know, I mean, so, so what was the cause of the enormous loss of life in Libya? Well, the fact that they knew the dams were crumbling for over a decade. Exactly. Okay? And, there you go. And in New York City, I mean, this happens not infrequently, this kind of flooding. Fix your sewers, dudes, you know, like. There uh, you go. It's like, oh, it's climate change. We don't have to, you know, the only thing we can do, <laughs> you know, is, yeah. is a bunch of wind, windmills. <laughs> and, and, you know, it, it's yeah. just crazy. Yeah, and it's mean, all become stupid.
0: Yeah, and um, I, I know this sounds random. I'm I'm not the scientist that you are. I I I was trained in engineering, but that's that's a far cry from the stuff you do. Um, it seems to me that um, maybe we should focus on things a little bit more right in front of us. Um, for example, um, our our power grid—it's a little bit weak right now. It's and. And it's going to be stressed even more by more and more EVs. And, um, you know, if these folks are really concerned about CO2, it seems like they would be embracing nuclear, for example, which has a very small carbon footprint. Carbon, which means CO2. It's just a making CO2 sound like it's something dirty. But anyway, um, it seems like they would want nuclear. And it seems like they would beef up their wires. But those those changes they take decades decades to implement and infrastructure is important um, I don't know help me out here I I'm well, kind of fishing
1: I'm not, I'm not sure if you've read part three of my book climate uncertainty and risk <laughs> but you're you're you know you're echoing a lot of the issues and points okay
0: okay i don't think i got that far but you know what also you know we've only got maybe 10 minutes left why don't you take right now and describe your book so people can look it up and 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 get a copy of it
1: okay so my book climate uncertainty and risks was published in june you can get it at amazon or barnes and noble or whatever online um vendor you prefer um Basically, what it is is a rethink <laughs> of you know, the
2: whole yeah. thing. Yeah.
1: Um, both the problem and the solutions, and it describes how we got to. Part one describes how we got to this crazy place, and I've given you some some hints of that in my previous um, discussions. Um, part two talks about well, how how might the climate of the 21st century actually play out? Yeah. And it A much broader range of scenarios than than what you you know get from the UN you know in the climate models. It considers a lot more factors and worst case, and it's it's a realistic assessment of what Mm -hmm. this might look. And then part three is risk and response. You know when I talk about how we've mischaracterized climate risk and how we should go about characterizing it, talk about risk management and decision making uncertainty. And a, and a key issue here is, you know, forget the tr- top-down global approach with all these deadlines and targets and make this problem into sort of human-sized problems so we can, yeah. um, and, and local, you know, on a more local kind of time scale. You know, climate change is really just thousands of local vulnerabilities that are, extreme uh, that are revealed by extreme weather events those mm-hmm. that's the impacts that we need to be concerned about so let's deal with these things you know water water is a big issue too much or too little okay um reservoirs storm se-
0: sewers yeah very <laughs> practicable yeah
1: very very practical approaches to managing this um So so there's ways to address these issues. And and in terms of the solutions space, you know, I take a sort of a pragmatic, no regrets kind of approach. And, you know, when you're talking about this, it's a lot easier to get people to agree on solutions than it is to get them to agree on the cause. You know, in the climate space, you know, we're still arguing about the cause and that's never going to end. But there are some solutions that everybody agrees on. We need more research and development into energy technologies, yes, transmissions, smart local grids, and on and on it goes, and also um, adapting to extreme weather, like I mentioned, you know, too much water, too little water kind of sure. thing. Um, focusing on these kind of problems in terms of energy, um, you know, if you, if you look, electricity. If you look forward to 2100, <laughs> to, whatever crystal ball you know yeah, you can yeah. come up with, we're probably not going to be burning fossil fuels for energy. We'll probably still be using them for products, you know, polymers, plastics, and all those kind of things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But we're not going to be burning it, I don't think, for a whole host of reasons. Um, so, you know, we should be trying to imagine what do we want our 21st century energy infrastructure to look like we're going to need a lot more electricity not just from electrifying everything but data centers and artificial intelligence and all this stuff is exploding in terms of its use of electricity. Yeah, and it's all
0: electrified yes
2: yeah it's huge it's
0: You know what's Um, you know what's big to me, and we're talking today uh, with Judith Curry, an expert in climate. Um, What's concerning? What is a real interest in me is backup systems. Uh, survivability, uh, reliable systems, and and even um, if I if I take an example, you know, just solar farms. Um, you know, we're we're up here in the Northeast where we get we get snow, and and you know, half the time it's it's black, it's dark, and sometimes the solar far- farms work, and other times they're not. It's an unreliable source of power.
1: Oh, and and, and wind as well. Um, that you know, too. The- and you know the, the, the irony of this <clears throat> is the reason we're doing this in the first place is because we're worried about bad weather, right? Yes, and so, we're, and so we're letting our electric power generation be subject to the vagaries of weather. I mean, it's yes, we of, are. As,
0: yes, we are.
1: Uh, um, the, the wind and solar makes sense in a few regions, but sure. definitely not in the Northeast U.S. <laughs> okay, so yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, you know, nuclear, I mean, nuclear power is definitely the best solution, it you is. know, for the North U.S. Um, in the West, there's some exciting developments in advanced geothermal power, you know, which show a great deal of promise, but it's not a really good solution for everywhere. But nuclear power is definitely the best yeah. option for you in the Northeast. And, you know, the offshore wind turbines is the absolute worst. I mean, they're crazy expensive. <laughs> uh, they're, they're killing the whales. They're disrupting the whole yeah, coastal exactly. ecosystem. I exactly. Mean, it's absolutely insane. And, and it, it's really a tough environment. They're going to have to replace those wind turbines, oh, yeah. you know, on a timescale of less than 10 years. So it's just crazy, crazy expensive. You know, you know another
0: technology I like a lot is just the old-fashioned hydro generation plants.
1: Where you have it, hydro is good, you don't have it everywhere, no and and it is subject to drought, like in the north correct u s you did have a big drought in the nineteen sixties, if mm-hmm. that happens again, you know your hydropower's you know going to be knocked down, so you know it's quasi reliable, way more reliable than wind and solar, oh yeah, it does have a environmental impact, but it's a really good solution in you know certain regions where you have
2: it,
0: yeah, if you have it, yeah. Well, that's all interesting. Um, today, we're honored to talk with Judith Curry. Um, we've only got a couple of minutes left. If you wanted to give a summary of where we think, where you think we are, and some practical steps, uh, feel free to go ahead.
1: Okay, where we are is in big trouble. You know, we're between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, where we have all these urgent deadlines and targets and whatever and code red and on the highway to hell yeah yeah exactly these are the words from the u.n secretary general oh dear and giving us policy solutions which don't seem justified don't seem doable and certainly are politically infeasible you know where does that leave us we do have real problems you know dealing with extreme weather And climate variability, and we need to be prepared to face whatever nature throws at us. That's right. So we have to, you know, increase our resilience. And we do this through economic (laughs) development, dealing with infrastructure, better land use policies, and better disaster management protocols. Mm -hmm. This is what we focus on. But in the background, we should be working to transition to a better 21st century energy infrastructure that allows for you know much greater abundance of electricity we're going to need orders of magnitude more than what we're currently consuming oh yeah
0: we will yeah
1: Uh, and right now nuclear is the best option in most places and we just need to get on with it
0: yeah you know what i like about nuclear too is the footprint it doesn't take up much land area does it
1: No, this is the biggest thing about wind, uh, particularly, well, wind and solar. I mean, rooftop solar, I think, is a reasonable solution, but the wind farms, the solar farms um, have a huge land imprint, and then the transmission lines, I mean, because the wind farms are going to be in the middle of nowhere, the Great Plains or whatever, Mm -hmm. have these, you know, transcontinental transmission lines all over the place. And how is this? Not to mention the aesthetics of all this. I mean, it's ecologically a problem. Yes. Um, in many ways. So, I mean, it's just it's just a a terrible solution. And the reason we got on this path is we urgently need to you know reduce fossil fuel emissions. So the quickest thing we have is technology we already have and we can rapidly deploy it. <laughs> so that's why we went the wind and solar route. But it's you know, but this urgency of the transition has caused us to make some really bad decisions yes. about our electric
0: infrastructure. It's that boy, you, you're right on that. That urgency factor is is what's so frustrating to me personally. We are at a time. Uh, one more time, if someone wants to find you online, get your book. How would they go about doing that?
1: Okay, my book. Climate Uncertainty, you can get it on Amazon.com I have a blog Climate Etc. JudithCurry.com If you're on Twitter my Twitter handle is at CurryJA and I'm also on LinkedIn
0: Very good Well thank you It's an honor talking with you and thank you for making time for us, Judith Curry God bless you and I hope you have a really good week ahead.
1: Oh, well, thank you.
0: And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.